Well, many years ago, in a former life, I started a company called Real Estate Restoration. Now, that's just a fancy term for a house painting business. And I did that for nine years. Ask me sometime about my backside of the wilderness experience, and I'll share with you, because I was painting for those nine years in a backside of the wilderness experience. Mostly exterior, some interior, but mostly outside, in first in Colorado and then in California. And what it amounted to was just a lot of power washing and wire brushing and scraping. And if my scraper happened to go into that piece of wood, then I would need to replace some things. Even though both climates in those two locations, Colorado and California, are much drier than here, they're prone to a certain type of termite, which just wreaks havoc on houses. And so oftentimes I'd be doing that and then priming. And all of that could take, because I worked alone, all of that could take days until there was any color on the house, until the house started to look like what the client really wanted the house to look like. In fact, I branded myself or marketed myself as one who would invest a lot of time in the prep work. The most important part of the job is prep work. Well, that's a little bit like Psalm 85. Psalm 85 is a prayer about the prep work needed for restoration, for revival, for renewal. You'll remember the name Ray Ortland. We read a book by him on the gospel a few months back. Ray Ortland has a great definition of what revival is. Revival is about God taking sinful, exhausted, discouraged, people and bringing felt forgiveness, fresh energy, new hope, invigorated power, and a wonderful new sense of himself. Is that your need? It's my need. It was my need the last hour, <laughs> and it's my need again. In fact, we, we got so much into this last hour that we blew a fuse, all right? And that's why there's no air conditioning. And trust me, I can feel it, well, not quite as much as those of you in the balcony, but I can feel it up here much more than you can down there. But is this our need? I want to apply Psalm 85. It's not just, we're not just going to take a cursory look at a psalm written years ago, but I want to make application to us as well. I think this is where most of us are at. Maybe we've struggled with sin this last week. Maybe we've, we've been shamed by someone. Maybe We've just had a really tough time at work. Maybe things aren't copacetic at home, so to speak, with our children or even our grandchildren. We're in need of felt forgiveness, fresh energy, new hope, invigorated power. And Psalm 85 is a template for that. The Apostle Peter gives probably the best definition of what revival is in all of Scripture. In his sermon in Acts chapter 3, Peter said this, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That, and here it is, times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Messiah, the Christ, appointed for you, namely Jesus. It's these times of refreshing that we seek, is it not? Hopefully that's one of the reasons you came this morning, is for a time of refreshing, and Psalm 85 is going to give that to us. So let me set Psalm 85 within a little bit broader context. 
We began our Songs for Summer, which is something we're, we've been doing now for multiple summers. We began this year with Psalm 77, a Psalm of Asaph, one of Israel's worship leaders. And then we looked at seven of those Psalms of Asaph until last week. And then last week, Pastor Eric introduced us to a different writer, namely the sons of Korah. Last week's Psalm, Psalm 84, was attributed to the sons of Korah. In fact, there are 11 of the 150 psalms that are attributed to the sons of Korah. Do you recognize that name? Korah. It's not a nice name in the history of Israel. In fact, it's a notorious name in the history of Israel. Yet, the writers of Psalm 85 bear that name. The sons or the descendants of this notorious person, Korah. Let me refresh your memory. Korah was a first cousin to Moses and Aaron. He had a dispute with them and their leadership style. In fact, he led a revolt against them. And Numbers chapter 16 is one of the weirdest chapters in all of Scripture. I'm going to have verses 32 and 33 put up on the screen. Watch what happens when God judges Korah for his revolt. He perished when, quote, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up. It's like, wait, what? Are you kidding me? With their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods, so that they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol and the earth closed over them. You can't make this stuff up, right? You might see this on some blockbuster Hollywood movie or something, but this is crazy. This is wild. This is God's word. This is fact. This actually happened to Korah and his family right there in front of their tent. But Numbers 26.11 tells us that some of the sons of Korah weren't there that day. We don't know where they were, but they were spared. They did not die. Numbers 26, 11 says not all the sons of Korah died. In fact, we learned from 1 Chronicles 9 that Korah's descendants, because they were of the tribe of Levi, they became gatekeepers in the house of the Lord. Those two things, Korah perishing, being sucked into the earth, and his descendants becoming gatekeepers in the house of the Lord, those two things are somewhat disjointed, disconnected. But it's going to make sense as we go through Psalm 85, the, the significance of that. By the way, this adds a little more clarity, does it not, to that verse we heard last week in Eric's sermon, Psalm 84, verse 10. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Of course, if, if you're a son of, so of Korah, that makes sense. You, of course you would say that. I really like what I'm doing here. I want to be a doorkeeper here. I don't want to be in the tents of wickedness that got sucked down into the bowels of the earth. Well, Psalm 85 appears to be written after the time of Israel's exile. You remember they were judged for their disobedience and they were sent into captivity first to Babylon and then to Persia. And then some of them came back. Think of the times of Ezra and Nehemiah. They had come back to Jerusalem. They're excited to be out of captivity. They're glad to be back in the promised land. They're happy to be home. But guess what? Things are not the same. It's a mess. In fact, Nehemiah says in his first chapter, they're in great trouble or disgrace and shame. They're not feeling it. They need something more than that. 
It isn't what they had been told it was like here in the promised land. They need a time of refreshment. And that's what Psalm 85, I believe, is addressing. In this psalm, we're going to hear the voice of a son of Korah. And we're even going to kind of peer into and listen to his thoughts as well as he's speaking this prayer to God. And it's going to be interesting because we'll be able to observe as we walk through this the progression in his thought process. I've said this earlier. I'll say it again here. While the psalmist expresses his prayer, his thoughts, even his emotions to God, that in turn gets shaped. God shapes his thoughts, his emotions, and even his character as he's expressing them to God in prayer. That's what, what we need, right? I don't know about you, but that's what I need. Maybe I should just hold a mirror up in front of me right here and just preach to myself, right? That's exactly what I need at times, is I need that sense of restoration, of renewal, of revival, so to speak. And that's what Psalm 85 is going to portray to us this morning. There is a key word in this psalm. It's repeated five times. And the reason it caught my attention is because the last time I preached, I preached on Psalm 80, where this exact same word appeared four times. So Asaph thought it was important. Now the sons of Korah think it's important. It's the Hebrew term which gets translated turn back or make us turn back. Sometimes in, this, in, in your version of, of Psalm 85, it might say restored. It might be translated turned from. It's even in verse 6 translated again. The point is this. The psalmist yearns for restoration. The psalmist yearns that he would be turned back into a restorative relationship, a healed relationship with God. Here's what I think is the big idea or the key idea in this psalm. It's a little bit long, but I'm going to put it on the screen or they're going to put it on the screen and you can see it for yourself. So spiritual restoration is a process of remembering God's past mercies, that's the first thing, expecting God's salvation, and rejoicing in God's goodness. Just leave that up there for a second. As we work our way through Psalm 85, we're going to see, actually, the words of that key idea, we're going to see them just bubble right off of the, out of, out of the psalm, bubble to the surface right out of the psalm. Words like restoration, remembering, mercy, uh, this expectation idea, salvation, and finally, God's goodness. So spiritual restoration, this is where we're headed, is a process of remembering God's past mercies, expecting God's salvation, and rejoicing in God's goodness. Now, hold your Bible a little away from you so you can see the whole thing in front of you. And I know that's hard to do on a phone, right? So for those of you that brought your phone and not your paper Bible, uh, just to, you know, maybe next time you should bring a paper Bible because so you can look at it in its completeness. Just glance at all 13 verses. What I want you to see here is there's a bit of structure which is fascinating. The psalm is divided into three, let's call them verses or stanzas. That's a better term, stanzas. The first stanza is verses one through three, and this is where we're going to focus on remembering. And then verses four through seven, which is a slightly longer stanza, is going to focus on this 
uh, this expectation of God's salvation. Verse 8 is a pivot verse. It's a hinge verse, kind of a fulcrum. To use the musical analogy in the, the last worship gathering, I used the word refrain. And I was talking to one of our uh, worship leaders and tech guys, and he said, you know, I, when, I thought, when I saw that, I thought of the word bridge. So if you're a musician, it's a bridge. Verse 8 is going to serve as a bridge from the first seven verses to the remaining verses, 9 through 13. And in those remaining verses, it, it's a great climax to the psalm. We're going to see this, this rejoicing in the goodness of God. So that's where we're headed. It's, it's Hebrew poetry at its best. And I know that I'm probably the only one in here that's super excited about that. It's just, it's just wonderful just how the psalm writer is utilizing Hebrew poetry in such an effective way to get his point across. Let's look at the first stanza, verses 1 through 3. And we're focusing here again on remembering God's past mercy. This is the first thing we can do when we're in need of restoration or renewal is remember God's past mercies. The psalmist is speaking about God's activity, but in the past. But he's remembering on a really deep level. This isn't just some casual observance of, oh yeah, I remember you did that. No, he's, he's really thinking and pondering the fact of what God has done. In fact, he expresses a series of action words to demonstrate the things that God has done, the reality of how God had already been at work. This remembrance serves as an anchor. It anchors God's people into the reality of who God is. We need to do the same thing. We need to follow the lead of the sons of Korah and do exactly the same thing. Verses 1, 2, and 3 use another example of Hebrew poetry, which I just think is fascinating to me. We've said this before, that Hebrew poetry is not like English poetry. It's not about um, a line rhyming at the end with another line. No, it's, it uses things like parallelism. And these first three verses do, in fact, that very thing. Notice the very first verse. Lord, you were favorable to your land. And then he gives a second statement. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. That's called parallelism, where that second half of the verse literally amplifies or further defines the first half of the verse. Do you notice how land is equated to Jacob? We have a hard time relating to that. We don't live in an agricultural society. We don't have this connection to the land that they did. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, when you see God talking about the land or blessing the land, he's really, he is talking about the physical land, the geography, but he's also talking about the people. There was this interconnectedness between the land and the people. And so we see it here in the first verse. In, also in verse 1, he says that, Lord, you have been favorable to the land. In other words, you've been favorable to your people. The word literally means you've been delighted in them. You're pleased with them. You've chosen to be such. You've chosen to accept them. The word is rich. It's similar to the word that we use in our New Life Church mission statement, where we talk about delighting in God and bringing those that are disconnected from God into a delighting relationship with Him. And then verse 2, 
Another parallelism. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. Let's unpack this a little bit. This term forgave literally means to bear a burden for someone else. Sin is portrayed here as a weight that's pressing down on God's people. But God's mercy lifts it off and then carries it away. Isn't that a beautiful picture? I love that word picture. And then if that's not good enough, he goes on to say, in fact, your sins have been covered. And the, the psalmist, the psalm writer is using a word that would reference up to take a piece of clothing, to come alongside a, a naked person and to put a piece of clothing on them to hide their or cover their nakedness. Sin is being portrayed here as a, as a hideous stain which God is covering. Now, for those theologians in the crowd, we know that there's a doctrine about that. It's called the atonement, the doctrine of the covering. We know that we're covered by the blood of Jesus. It's a beautiful picture. When we do wrong, we carry the consequences. But the psalmist is saying, but I remember that God came and took that weight, took those consequences and carried them for me. The psalmist is describing how God has covered the sins of his people so they're no longer spiritually naked. Do you need that? I do. And then, fascinating to me, he's not through this first section yet, this first stanza, but he stops. Verse 3 should come right on the heels of verse 2, but no, he stops with Selah. We've talked about this before. Selah appears to be uh, an indicator that it's time for the vocalist to stop singing. You musicians, you can continue playing, maybe a little bit softer, but for the purpose that the audience, and in this case, that's us, would ponder the words of what we just read, the words of what we just sung. Selah. It's like he's so overwhelmed by the reality of God carrying our iniquities and covering our sin that he's just beside himself and has to stop, and he wants everyone else to do the same. Now, if I was teaching this psalm in this classroom over here down the hall, instead of standing here and preaching this psalm, we would stop. I would invite some feedback, right? Those of you that have been in a class that I've taught, I'd ask for some feedback. I'd ask you to share, how has God carried the weight, the consequences of your sin? How has God covered the stain of your sin? How has he done that? We need to know. We need to learn. In fact, I would probably write some of them on the whiteboard so we could see them, so we could relish the fact of God's mercy and grace, how he has carried the burdens of our iniquities and has covered the nakedness of our sin. I want the reality of God's amazing grace to sink in deeper into our souls. Well, I'm not in the classroom, or maybe I just was, but gave you hopefully enough time to ponder that, to think about that. That's what the psalmist wants us to do. And then he goes on to verse 3 and says, you withdrew, literally, you gathered up and you took away your wrath, and you turned from. Here's a use of that key word. You turned from your hot anger, your burning, seething fierceness. These two descriptions here 
of wrath and hot anger. I want to just just jump ahead real quick right here because I want to connect it. If you look at your Bible, connect it to the word indignation in verse 4. And again, the word angry in verse 5. And the word anger also in verse 5. He's using five separate terms to describe something. It's a burning, seething uh, fierceness. It's a it's a it's wrath. It's hot anger. It's to be enraged. That word anger to all generations found there in verse five literally means to literally to flare the nostrils. Have you been so angry before that you've flared your nostrils? You've just been enraged at something. Well, God is, and it's our sin that causes Him to do that. We'll come back to that in a second, but let's go back to verse three. You know, Old Testament saints would often and repeatedly look backward. They'd look back to the exodus, or they'd look back to the return from exile, and they would remember God's deliverance. In fact, they're commanded over and over and over again to remember God's deliverance, His mercy, and their restoration. Well, that begs the question, does it not? Do we remember in the same way? Is there anything that's happened in our lives that we could look back on and see an example of God's mercy, God's grace? How about the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross? Which, quite frankly, is way better than looking back at the Exodus or looking back at the return from exile. And so what's, what's, we're being invited to do here, along with the sons of Korah, we're being invited to look back, to look back to how we have experienced grace and salvation. And to remember that finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf on the cross. Well, once we've done some remembering, then let's slide into the next stanza, verses 4 through 7. And let's call this expecting God's salvation. Now, you'll see, if you just glance at it, that other than than verse 4, the rest are, are rhetorical questions. Right there at the center of this section the sons of Korah are asking rhetorical questions, questions that they know the answer to, but they're asking it in order to make a point. And by doing so, I think they're showing expectation. They're expecting God to deliver them. They're expecting God's salvation in verses 4 through 7. Let me remind you again of the situation to his audience here, the people that would have first sung this. They've returned from exile. Jerusalem is not the way it was meant to be. In fact, in Nehemiah chapter 1, when Nehemiah asks his brother and some others who have visited Jerusalem, Nehemiah is back in Persia. He asks him, well, what's it like? What's the situation? And they they said to him in Nehemiah 1, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. I think the New American Standard says, and disgrace. In fact, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down. There's no security anymore. And even its gates have been burned or destroyed by fire. Is this your condition? It has been my condition in the past. And that's when I need to be able to draw on this great expectation that God's salvation will come and once again renew, restore, and revive me to what he has designed me to be. You know, the... The return of the people out of exile back to Jerusalem was a wonderful thing. It was celebrated. It was great. But it was no guarantee that all of them had returned in their hearts to the Lord. 
Warren Wearsby, who for many years pastored Moody Church in, in Chicago and then wrote m- multiple commentaries on, on practically every book in the Bible, said this about that pa- this passage. A change in geography will never overcome a flaw in character. You know, just getting back out of the exile isn't going to be sufficient if deeper things aren't dealt, dealt with. And I think that applies to us. Just showing up on a Sunday morning and being part of this corporate worship and getting kind of the feel-good vibe of what goes on here on a Sunday corporate worship is wonderful. It's great. I encourage you to continue doing that. But there's more that's needed much deeper than that. We must remember God's past mercies and then expect his great salvation. Verse 4 says, restore us again. There's that word again. Now translated restore. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation before us. Put away your, your anger that's in response to how we have provoked you from, because of our unfaithfulness. And then verse 5. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you be enraged? Will, will, the, will, will your nostrils flare forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? You know, frankly, in this age of uh, best friends forever, you know, BFF, we've lost a sense of just how much God detests our disobedience. The use of these terms here, wrath, hot anger, indignation, the use of these terms here is, is, should grab our attention to the fact that, man, God is serious about sin. And that may be part of the reason why we're feeling a need for restoration, a need for renewal, because maybe we got some stuff in our lives that hasn't been dealt with, that hasn't been confessed, that hasn't been stated, God, I agree with you in what you say about my behavior. And you know, when you... When you're in a situation like that, it can feel like forever. It can feel like it, there's no end to this. What I think is fascinating, though, and I just absolutely love this, is that the end of verse 5, this question, will you prolong your anger to all generations? The sons of Korah know the answer to that question. Why? Because they're the sons of this despicable person, Korah, yet they're gatekeepers in the temple of the Lord? The answer to that question is, of course not. Of course not, God. You won't do that. In fact, we're exhibit A that you don't hold your anger forever. Praise God. Amen? Wow. I didn't hear anything except the echo of my own voice. We'll have to work on that a little bit. Let's look at verse 6. Work with me now. Stay with me. I know it's hot in here, but it's much hotter up here than down there. So stay with me. Verse 6. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? The, the, the request here is to be quickened, to be made alive again. The, the psalmist is asking God to restore his people to life once again, to end their suffering, to make them whole. And notice the immediate result of that. The immediate result is so that your people may rejoice in you. And that's exactly what's going to happen in the, the, the last section of this psalm. Verse 7, parallelism once again is, is used to make a point of emphasis. 
show or demonstrate to us, God, your steadfast love. This is that, that Hebrew term, hesed, we talk about. It's a covenant love. It's a, it's a love that we don't deserve, but God gives to us as a result of his promise, as a result of his agreement, his contract, his covenant. In other words, reveal your steadfast love, this covenant love. Reveal it to us by acting on it. That's the expectation. Reminded of what the prophet Micah says in chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. That's a wonderful promise. Well, how does God do this? How does God revive or restore us? It's one thing to have that expectation, but how does he do that? And as I posed that question to myself and actually put it in my notes, I realized we answered that question, how God does this. We answered that last week in our benediction. Pastor Eric had me read 1 Peter 5.10. Listen to the answer. The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. That's how God does that to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Back to the template. Once we remember God's past mercies and have an expectation of, of his salvation, then this last stanza, verses 8 through 13, we can begin to rejoice in God's goodness. First, the bridge, verse 8. Let me hear. That's an okay translation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. But quite frankly, it's a little too passive. The significance of the terminology here is much stronger than that. It means pay attention, take heed, hearken, listen, and listen with the idea of obedience. And it implies waiting for God's answer. But it's not, not the kind of waiting where you're just sitting on your hands waiting for whatever to come along, for God to do whatever. No, it's obedient waiting. It's a following the path laid before you kind of waiting on God. Let me hear. That's what he's saying there. And the change to that first person singular pronoun I think is significant. It may indicate that that worship leader, one of the sons of Korah, has, has maybe turned around or stepped out from leading the choir in order to challenge the congregation or maybe even the choir itself or better yet, just to simply affirm his own attentiveness to the lyrics that he's singing. That's why it says there in verse 8, let me hear that. Because any, any form of restoration brought by God, renewal, revival brought by God, it's got to start with me. Don't start praying for, okay, I'm going to pray that God will just really renew and revive and restore that guy over there or that lady over there. No, it's got to start with me. And so we see the psalmist saying that. Let me obediently hear. Let me pay attention. Let me heed what God the Lord will speak. And what's he going to speak? He's going to speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. He says God is going to, he's going to speak shalom. And it, it, that term peace, it's, it's way more than just a, um, an absence of conflict. It is that, but it's way more than that. It, shalom speaks of spiritual and material well-being and wholeness, completeness, prosperity, goodness. Once again, how do we know peace? We know peace by knowing Jesus. 
I was reminded this week of an old, old bumper sticker. You've probably seen it. It has two lines on it. The top line says, no, Pete, no Jesus equals no peace. No Jesus equals no peace. But so does the second line, except they're spelled differently. The first line says N-O, no Jesus, or the absence of Jesus gives no peace. But to know Jesus, K-N-O-W, to know Jesus, to have an intimate relational knowledge of Jesus brings peace. On this side of the cross, we look back to Jesus. The psalmist goes on to say, look, I'm warning you, don't turn back. Don't go back the way that you came from. Let them not turn back to folly. All you have to do is basically look at the book of Judges and you recognize that the Israelites had a long history of returning to folly. You know, a better, a better translation of that word is stupidity. We could probably relate to that better. It's the sort of stupidity that thinks that you can make your own decisions, that you can safeguard your own future, that you are the captain of your, of your, of your fate, right? And when I was reflecting on this, I'm going to date myself here, I was reminded of a tune by Frank Sinatra. I did it my way. What a stupid song, quite frankly. Because we can't. We can't. Apart from a relationship with our creator and redeemer, we can't do it our way. And so he's warning them in verse 8, don't return to that. Don't turn back to folly. And then verses 9 through 13 end this psalm with this just wonderful um, example of what God's design, his, his initial and ultimate design of how life should be, should look like. In verse 9, he says, surely, he's giving them an assurance here because of, of the fact that it's his salvation. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. So that glory, the term for glory there literally means weight. There's weightiness to God. There's, there's substance to God so that his glory may dwell in our land. That term dwell is the same word uh, that we get the word Shekinah from. You've heard the people talk about Shekinah glory. It, it's just a reference to the dwellingness of God's glory. I'm reminded of John 1.14 where the same term is used, although in Greek, the word, speaking of Jesus, the word became flesh and he dwelt. He took up residence. He pitched his tent. Some would say he tabernacled among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, that grace and truth get further amplified in, in verse 10. There's four wonderful Old Testament terms, Old Testament virtues, and they're presented as if they are people who've come together, who are embracing each other. They're even kissing this intimate relationship that's brought to bear, brought to mind by a kiss. They're, they're brought together here in verse 10, this steadfast love, this covenant love. And notice, it's, it's as if that is coming down from the heavens because it's God's love for his created order and for his people. And then as a result of that, faithfulness rises up from the earth. Righteousness comes down. All that is right and just comes down from God in the heavens so that peace, completeness, and wholeness rises from the earth. 
Notice verse 11 just underscores that parallelism again. Faithfulness is springing up from the ground as righteousness looks down from heaven. This is a beautiful picture of how God designed things to be. In fact, in verse 12, yes, the Lord will give what is good. That's the overarching term here. That's why I've called this section rejoicing in God's goodness. Do you remember the first time that term is used in Scripture? The term good? It's used in creation. Why? Because this is part of God's design from the beginning for His world and for His created order. Genesis chapter 1, verse 4. And then many times throughout the first few chapters of Genesis, God calls His creation good. Well, what is the result? What is the result of all this? It's it's climaxed in verse 13. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Derek Kidner, the British uh, Old Testament scholar who went home to be with the Lord in 2008, wrote this about this verse. The climax is one of the most satisfying descriptions of concord to be found anywhere in Scripture. Spiritual, moral, and material. The psalmist is describing a world of holiness and harmony. In fact, I think this is a picture of his coming kingdom over which Jesus Christ will reign. But the picture in verse 13 is not something static. We're rejoicing in God's goodness, but it's not static. It, it, is, it shows movement, movement that impacts the present. We have this blessed hope of a future, but it makes a difference in our presence. Notice it says, and righteousness goes before him and make his footsteps away. That points to the reality that we don't just simply sit back and bask in God's goodness. No, there's an assumed call to response, call to action here in verse 13, that we would what? That we would follow in his ways in response to his goodness. This too harkens back to creation. And I can't help but make that connection as well. The way that God originally designed life to be before sin entered the picture. Do you remember that? Adam and Eve apparently had a history of walking with God in the cool of the day in the garden, Genesis 3, 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That sounds like something they had a practice of doing. Unfortunately, in Genesis 3, 8, they had already sinned, and they hear the voice of God, and they don't want to be anywhere near Him. Why? Because they're full of shame, because they've been disobedient. But this is what God is pulling us back to. And we may have walked in here this morning. I don't know your story. I just know my story. You may have walked in here this morning feeling like, man, I have really blown it this week, and I don't know how to get out of this. Or, man, I was mistreated this week. Things didn't fall into place like I thought they would. That deal that I was going to close on Tuesday, it went up in flames. And on and on and on. We walk in here needing renewal, needing refreshment, needing restoration. Psalm 85 is a great place to go. Interesting thing about spiritual restoration, though. You can't schedule it on the church calendar. You know, we're going to have restoration. We're going to have spiritual restoration on November 15th. 
we can't, we can't do that, right? Now, we can do other things. Yesterday, I met with 12 other men at the Austin Farm. We set aside a couple hours just to be in God's Word and to share what we learned. That's, we can do that kind of thing. But spiritual restoration in, in its completeness can't be scheduled because it belongs to God. It's initiated by God. We put ourselves in a position by remembering His mercies, expecting His salvation, and rejoicing in His goodness, but ultimately it's up to Him. It's a sacred thing. It's a sacred trust. It is God displaying the glories of His Son, Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's a process. So I'm back to our key idea. Spiritual restoration is a process. We remember God's past mercies. We expect God's salvation. And then we rejoice in His goodness. Let's pray. Father, that's what we want to do. That's who we want to be. We want to remember your amazing grace and mercy in our lives. And as a result then, to have this growing expectation that you will deliver again. Because your salvation is based on your covenant. Your salvation is not based on a whim. It's not based on our performance. It's based on your covenant and your character. We rejoice in that. We rejoice in your goodness. Lord, take the truth of Psalm 85 and make it a template for our lives. Help us to remember this the next time we're in need of restoration. And may we turn to this psalm. May we turn to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.